Am I broadcasting? Is this working? Yes? Thumbs up in the back? Am I broadcasting? Okay, you can hear me. Good, good. Good to be back among you, and I see on my calendar that I'm also here uh, next uh, Lord's Day. So, uh, more of the Psalms. Today is Psalm 4 as our focus, and I'm reading two texts. uh, The first from the Gospel of Luke, which is uh, the uh, event in the Gospels where the disciples ask Jesus, Lord, teach us how to pray. And then Psalm 4, our second text, I'm doing Old Testament last for the focus of preaching. And then Psalm 4, which is one of David's prayers, and uh, associated uh, again with that battle that he had with Absalom, which we see also in Psalm 3. Let's pay attention then to the Word of God as it comes to us from the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 11, down to uh, verse uh, 13. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, Teach us to pray, just as John the Baptist taught his disciples. He said to them, When you pray, say this, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on the journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me, the door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't give up and get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you bread because of friendship, Yet, because of your shameless audacity, (laughs) he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And now the reading from the Old Testament, Psalm 4. For the director of music, with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call to you, O my righteous God. When I was hard-pressed, you opened the way for me. Be kind to me and answer my prayer. You people, how long will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love what is empty and seek deceit? Know that the Lord treats with special care his faithful servant. Hence, the Lord hears when I call to him. So tremble and do not sin. When you are on your bed, search your hearts and be silent. 
Offer righteous sacrifice and trust in the Lord. Many ask, who will bring us prosperity? Let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. You have filled my heart with more joy than when their grain abounded and their new wine overflowed. And so in perfect peace I will lie down and I will sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. April 4th, 1864. A letter from Abraham Lincoln to a southern gentleman who had written to him, Albert Hodges of Frankfort, Kentucky. You may know that those Kentuckians were rather mixed. Some were pro-North, some were pro-South during that unpleasantness between the states uh, in, the middle 18, in the 1860s. And Lincoln writes this, uh, with yet one year still within the war to fight, though that was unknown to him. Here's what he writes. At the end of three years' struggle, the nation's condition is not what either party or any man devised or expected. God alone can claim it. Whither it is tending seems plain. If God now wills the removal of a great wrong, and wills also that we of the North as well as you of the South shall pay dearly for our complicity in that wrong, impartial history will find therein new cause to attest and revere the justice and the goodness of God. Yours truly, Abraham Lincoln. In that letter, we find that Lincoln is um, wills the reconciliation of North and South. The bitterness is still there. Another year of war to fight. April 9th, I think, 1865, will be the surrender at Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia by Robert E. Lee to General Grant. And a week later or so, a much larger surrender at uh, the Bennett Place. No relation, perhaps, to these Bennetts here. Maybe they are. I don't know. But a a large farm outside of Durham, North Carolina, and 65,000 rebel troops surrendered under the command of General Johnson to uh, William Tecumseh Sherman. And Lincoln willed a reconciliation. More famously than that letter is uh, the second inaugural address given March 4th, 1865. Lincoln, unknowns to him, had but 41 more days to live. He'd be shot in that Ford's Theater upper balcony the night of April 14th, 1865, survive one day. In his second inaugural, Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled up by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn by the lash shall be paid with another drawn by the sword, as it was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. That's Psalm 19, by the way. And then more famous words. This is the last paragraph of the speech. With malice toward none. With charity for all. With firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. Let us strive on to finish the work we are in. To bind up the nation's wounds. To care for him who shall have borne the battle. And for his widow and his orphan. 
to do all which may, which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Remember the first time I saw those words, I was about 14. My family was visiting the Lincoln Memorial, which now I think of as almost a piece of idolatry with that statue and temple-like setting. But there on the northern wall is inscribed the entire speech in stone. And I'm trying to read it while the family wants to <laughs> go get back to the car because it's a hot day. And I don't quite get to the last paragraph before my older brother says, Byron, come on. All right. But there's the last paragraph. With malice toward none. With charity toward all. It's beautiful. It's lovely. And it's Lincoln's attitude toward uh, north and south alike. While the, while the war had just a few more weeks to limber on. In Psalm 4, we have something very similar by King David. In Psalm 3, we saw that the heading describes the psalm as uh, the psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. It was the deepest challenge to David's royal authority in his entire 40-year reign. Absalom, his favorite son, the most handsome one of, of them all, the most handsome of all the Israelites, says the Old Testament. Yeah, there he'd gathered to himself a great faction uh, of followers, and then uh, in declaring rebellion in his own kingship, tens and tens and tens of thousands followed him and fought against Absalom's own father, the Lord's anointed King David. And we saw in Psalm 3 David's prayer before the battle. How many are my foes? How many rise up against me? How many say there's no hope for him, not even in God? But you, O Lord, are the shield around me, my glorious one, the one who lifts my head. Therefore, I will not fear. And, uh, and I will sleep. Okay, I, I lay down and I slept and I awoke again. The Lord sustains me. The night before the battle, David had a good night's sleep. That probably wouldn't be true of me. And now in Psalm 4, what do we find? It is, uh, we believe, um, David's prayer after the battle. And in this prayer after the battle, we see that David is willing to address the now defeated rebels and to pray for them. Doesn't Jesus tell us to pray for our enemies and show kindness to those who abuse us? David does it in this psalm, David's prayer after the battle. And we see in the psalm that there are two kinds of faith. There was a faith in Absalom that failed. There was a faith in the Lord that did not fail. There is a prayer of despair by Absalom's now defeated followers. And there is a prayer of faith. Shine upon us, Lord. And there are two kinds of sleep in the psalm. There is that teeth-gritting anxiety that gets you never many more than 39 winks because you're insomniac and in, in uh, frustration upon that bed. And then there's David's sleep, which is sweet and peaceful. Two kinds of faith, two kinds of prayer, two kinds of sleep. And so in our circumstance in the psalm, we find that Absalom's war is now done. David had given the command to his own troops that, uh, do, do the young man no harm. That's not what happened. 
We don't see direct reference to that tragedy within the psalm itself. David's cousin and general, Joab, uh, believed that if Absalom survived the battle, David would never be safe. And so Joab saw to it that Absalom, that highly charismatic and attractive figure, that handsome fellow with the head of, of Jewish Afro hair, okay, Joab made sure that Absalom would not survive the battle. David laments, so Absalom, my son, my son, would that I had died instead of you. But later that night, David prays the foundation of this prayer, the psalm. And we have um, the circumstances of Absalom's war in Psalm 3, where the battle has not yet happened. You, O Lord, are the shield around me, and so I will not fear. And in Psalm 4, we have the new circumstance of a defeated enemy that is still massive in number. And how shall the nation be reconciled? It is rather like Lincoln, with malice toward none, with charity toward all. That's David's prayer. And so in uh, the psalm, we find that David addresses God confidently in prayer, the righteous God. He then exhorts the Israelite enemy, the brothers, yeah, the, the brother, his own Israelite brothers, who are defeated now, and basically says, settle down and submit. And then he exhorts them to offer right sacrifice and trust. That expression about sacrifice means essentially for us, yeah, go to church and worship God. <laughs> in those days, of course, sacrifice is only offered at the, the tabernacle, and in the next generation, only at the temple. That is, only in Jerusalem, on Mount Zion. All right, offer the proper sacrifices of the righteous. Sacrifices that come from a sincere and penitent heart. And trust in the Lord. And then we have the prayer, which is uh, fascinating for its poetical uh, nuance. Uh, Shine the light of your face upon us, O Lord. And at the end of the prayer, a declaration of utter trust in God. I will sleep in complete peace. For you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. There's the psalm in brief form, and so we find within it a theology of prayer that is really quite lovely. And we can link that very easily to Jesus' own teaching about prayer, which is entirely congruent and, uh, and more complete, but entirely congruent. And then we'll see the usefulness of this psalm to us, which is immensely useful as we seek to learn how to pray. And so uh, the psalmist ensure, assures those who have hated his royal reign of the real dignity that God himself has given him. How long will you turn my glory to shame? Says the psalmist, says King David. In Psalm 3, uh, David says to God, You are my glory and the one who lifts my head. The, the word my glory is the same in both texts. Kivodi. In Psalm 3, the glory is the glorious one. Uh, you are my glorious one and the one who lifts my head in victory. In Psalm 4, Kivodi, my glory is David's royal dignity, which comes, of course, from the glorious God. And what has the enemy done? They have turned his glory, that is, his royal dignity, his, his, his anointing by God, uh, by, by, the, by the oil of the prophet Samuel, which is really the oil of the Holy Spirit. 
They've turned that messianic anointing, this divine election of David as the proper king, they've turned it to shame. And what should be a name that they hold in honor, David, is now a name they hold in contempt. How long will you turn my glory to shame? If they had properly revered David's glorious one, namely the living God, the God who anoints kings and who chooses the messianic line from David to Christ in a thousand years of history, if they had honored the truly glorious one, they would likewise have honored his anointed king. For us, of course, that glorious one is Christ, great David's greatest son. And there are those in our own time who want to bring that glorious name into shame. And so we find Jesus uh, insulted and hated and held in contempt. In my Facebook wanderings, I'm on a site that's uh, called, um, let's see, what's it called? Faith is Mental Illness. (laughs) I actually joined the site to see what the atheist had to say. (laughs) I sometimes participate and and join in the debate. Uh, And yes, all kinds of insults against Christ are born on that site and loved. Yeah, people push the like button and the, and the heart button for love on the most insulting post about Christian faith in Christ. I'm on there to instruct my conscience in how atheists talk, and it's useful. But here in the psalm, they have turned David's glory to shame, but now they are defeated. And so David contrast their frustration, their futility. There they are gnashing their teeth, so to speak, upon their beds in insomniac nights without trust in God. And David exhorts them to, all right, think upon your beds in your hearts, ponder in your hearts, and be quiet. That means essentially submit to the providence of God. And what is his providence for them in that very moment? That David is their true and rightful king. Jesus, our true and rightful King. All right, so on your beds, be quiet and submit to the will of God. And uh, after um, that disquietude about uh, them, we have um, this assurance, verse 3. Know that the Lord, uh, I'll do it more or less word for word, Know that the Lord has set apart the godly one for himself. What in the world does that mean? In the translation I read, I said something like, Know that the Lord uh, treats with special care the one who is devout toward him. That is, God, God considers believers in a special category of protected rank. And outside of that bracket of God's protective kindness, the grace of the covenant, the bond of faith and trust, which is mutual from God to us and us to God. Outside of that bond, what do we have? Well, insomnia. Yeah, gritting teeth all night long. No confidence, no trust. And so these frustrated, defeated enemies, who are nonetheless Israelites of the elect people, say in verse 6, who can show us any good? That is, our hopes were in Absalom for a wondrous kingdom under this successor to David, whom we adored. We were willing to overthrow his father, uh, kill that guy, 
Let's trust Absalom for our great and bountiful kingdom. And now Absalom is dead. And so what do the crowds of the defeated enemies say? Who can show us any good? It's a prayer of despair. Not quite a prayer. The next line actually presses us into prayer. Now this is one of those lovely cases where the Hebrew is beautifully ambiguous. Translations have difficulty in doing it all. So I'm going to have to render it twice. Because we have a Hebrew verb here that is spelled oddly, which evokes two different meanings because of the odd spelling. Um, The verb to lift up the light. We find it in number six, the great priestly blessing. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. Remember that line that that, uh, Moses commands the... Uh, Aaron and his sons to speak over Israel. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up. There's the verb. Lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. The Aaronic blessing. And the verb here for lifting up the light is spelled in a weird way, a unique way, in which we could also read it as the verb to flee. And in that case, we translate the line in this way. The light of your face has fled from us, O Lord. The light of your face has fled. That's what the rebels, now in their defeat, are saying to God. It is a prayer, but it is a prayer of despair. All right, now, the same sounds. Lift up the light of your face upon us. The Hebrew text is read both ways. And so, in the second version of the same line, we can read it as David's prayer for the enemy. And that is true. Most translations take it only in that singular way as David's prayer for the enemy. Let the light of your face shine upon us. That is upon us all, all Israelites, whether those who followed Absalom or those who do not. And so, we find this beautiful prayer The Israelites are despairing. Who's going to show us any good thing now that Absalom is dead? And perhaps in some commentaries we read um, um, a difference of opinion where following it as a a, a post-Absalom prayer is, is not done. Some of the commentaries go that way and take it more generally. But even so, it's the prayer of despair. Who can show us any good? And the psalmist prays, may the light of your countenance, lift up, O Lord, the light of your countenance upon us. It's a remarkable piece of poetry and hard to translate. Maybe I should write an article on it. We'll see. Yeah, I've got a 35-page article on a similar line in Hosea 6-7, <laughs> proving a double translation for a single word. Oh, well. But in our psalm, then, David is concerned about the defeated enemy. And he prays that God's face may shine upon them. Now look at verse 7. Here again we have a contrast. So again, as I've said, we have two types of faith. One, the faith in Absalom that failed. Two, the faith in God that does not fail. Two types of prayer. The prayer of despair after such a defeat. And the prayer of faith. By David. The light has fled from us, that's despair. Lift up the light upon us, that's faith. And we have two types of sleep. 
We have insomnia and we have peaceful rest. Now, can believers have insomnia? Well, I'll testify. Okay, I get it plenty of times. I have it plenty. But in verse 7, notice, You filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain abounded and their new wine overflowed. Here we have reference to at least two of the harvest seasons of Israel. In springtime, the winter barley is harvested. That happens around Passover, March or April. In midsummer, uh, the wheat is harvested. And uh, in early fall, the grapes are harvested. And so the, great, the three great feasts of Israel correspond with harvest seasons. Passover in spring, the barley harvest. The Feast of Weeks, I'm sorry, yeah, the Feast of, uh, yes, Weeks in, um, um, in early June or so, uh, which is the grain harvest. And then uh, the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall, October, November, the, feast, uh, the harvest of grapes. And here, you have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain, or possibly wheat, and their new wine abound. The new wine is the newly uh, trampled out uh, uh, vintage of the harvested, the newly harvested grapes. Not much fermented yet, but pretty powerful in fermentation power. And uh, that Feast of Tabernacles at the grape harvest is the most joyful, glorious Thanksgiving feast in all the annual celebrations of, of Israel. I was privileged to be in Jerusalem uh, 11 years ago for the Feast of Tabernacles, and it was the biggest street party I'd ever seen in my life. I'd never been to New Orleans for the Mardi Gras. Okay, never seen that up, up, up close and personal. But the, the Feast of Tabernacles, oh my! Such joy. It's the great fall feast. It lasts for a whole week, and people build uh, like tents in their backyards and in the streets, and uh, food and music and dancing and all sorts of wonderful things. And the last day of it, you actually get the Torah scrolls out of the synagogues, and you dance with them as if, as if the Torah is your beloved wife, your sweetheart. You dance with the Torahs. It's called Simchat Torah, uh, rejoicing in the Torah. And already in David's time, those things are in general true because they're commanded by Moses. All right, you filled my heart with more joy than when their grain and their new wine abounded. That is, there they are doing the Israelite customs, these defeated enemies, a joyful occasion in physical bounty. But what is the spiritual bounty that the believer can experience? You've given more joy to my heart than when their grain abounded and their new wine overflowed. Isn't that true? That the best joys are not the joys of the appetites, but the joys of the Spirit. That is, when we know God, those things are true. And so in verse 8, we have this statement of confidence. This is considered uh, by the scholars a psalm of trust. It grows out of the prayers of distress that are called by the scholars the laments. We have about 40 of those prayers of distress. Psalm 3 is the first in the set. Most of book 1 of the psalms, that is uh, Psalms 1 through 41, are psalms of distress. Uh, Everything from uh, Psalm 4 through Psalm 7 is a psalm of distress, a prayer of David regarding distress. And several are linked to the Absalom revolt, including this one. But what grows out of the psalm of distress often are statements of remarkable trust. And so scholars are willing to classify this one also as a psalm of trust or a psalm of confidence. 
the purest of all the psalms of confidence, that is the one with scarcely a note of anything wrong going on, is Psalm 23. You know, he anoints my head with oil, my cup overflows. Goodness and mercy follow me. It's beautiful. It's entirely a psalm of trust with only one brief mention of the enemy. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. They look on, they can do nothing. Well, God serves me, as it were, table in the desert, and I abound. The most famous of all the psalms of trust. And here in the psalm, though it begins with distress, with an urgent call for God to hear his prayer, the psalm ends with this lovely statement, I will lie down and sleep (laughs) in complete peace. That's the ideal, of course, that we have no anxieties whatsoever. Now, in real life, we are often caught up in anxieties, and you know the believer goes to bed with the teeth gritting. I broke a tooth three weeks ago, no, four weeks ago. In the morning, I woke up and yeah, I'd broken a tooth because I was so tight in that jaw. So I, the dentist had to address that a week later. All right, so yeah, believers gnash the teeth. But here the ideal is that we lie down and sleep in complete peace. And you have known that, I hope, at least sometimes in life. And why can a believer lie down and sleep in complete peace? For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Now this leads me to consider a line that I have um, um, glossed over for the moment and on purpose. It's the very first line of the psalm. The translations split on this question of how to render this opening line. Many render it with the, uh, the King James tradition, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. God of my righteousness. And that would seem to suggest that God is the source of our righteousness, and that claim, of course, is true. That is, for the believer... We are reconciled by the grace of Jesus Christ in his atoning death and the power of his resurrection and the gift of the Holy Spirit who renews our heart. And we, we, we trust in this Jesus and trusting in him we are justified by faith that is counted right even though we remain sinners. So we are, as Luther says, at the same time righteous and sinner. That is, we are sinner in ourselves, considered alone, but in Christ we're considered righteous, saints, and holy. And in fact, we are embraced, the Bible assures us, and given the status of the sons and daughters of God. That spirit of adoption, Paul says, is in us, and we cry out, Abba, Abba, which is Aramaic for father, almost the word daddy, almost. And the spirit of adoption can never be taken away. We may grieve the Holy Spirit by our sins, but we shall never lose the Holy Spirit by our sins. And in Roman law, an adopted child can never be disowned. (laughs) Yeah, Paul knew that and uses that truth as background to his wondrous teaching on adoption. Adoption as being the son or daughter of God is a permanent status and we are embraced and received and the Father will never say no. Come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. The one who comes to me I will never drive away, says the living Jesus. And so um, the child of God receives the gift of righteousness from God himself. That's true in both Old and New Testaments. 
But studies of Hebrew grammar have um, done better than the King James Version on this very point. And even in 1850, James A. Alexander, who taught Old Testament at Princeton, one of the most brilliant Hebrew scholars of his time, gets it right. And translations often have followed Alexander since 1850. And that's the translation form that I read. Answer me when I call to you, O my righteous God. Not God of my righteousness, but O my righteous God. Now, how do we get God of my righteousness? Because it's the order of the words in Hebrew. If we say God of Zion, we mean the God who lives in Zion. If we say God of love, we mean loving God. And in Hebrew, we can join two nouns together, but we can't put a possessive pronoun between the two nouns. So we can put down king and peace, and in Hebrew it means king of peace. That is, peaceful king. And that second noun becomes really an adjective in English. A king of peace is a peaceful king. A Christian of righteousness is a righteous Christian. Hebrew syntax works that way. But if you want to add the personal pronoun, that is, my, you have to put it at the very end. So God of righteousness, my, is the order of the Hebrew words. And in the King James Version, back in 1611, 411 years ago, uh, Hebrew grammar was not as well understood. And so the grammarians translated God of my righteousness, because the my was plugged onto the end of the word righteous. God of righteousness, my, is the order of Hebrew words. But uh, James A. Alexander's studies of Hebrew and others at that time said, no, no, no. This is all an adjective, and the my pertains to the whole phrase. And so what is it really? It's my righteous God. And so in the psalm, we appeal to God as the righteous God who answers prayer. But how can the righteous God answer the prayers of sinners? Isn't it just for a righteous God to reject the prayers of sinners? After all, he has no covenant with the wicked. You may remember King Claudius in Shakespeare's play Hamlet, if you're a reader of such books as those or a seer of such plays. Yeah, Claudius has murdered his brother, Hamlet's father, to become king in his place. And Hamlet, um, you know, haunted by the restless spirit of his father, is commissioned to take vengeance upon his uncle and kill King Claudius. And so that his own father's spirit can rest. It's, of course, imagination. It doesn't really work this way in real life. There are no ghosts. Okay, let's put that aside. But there is Claudius on his knees before the altar, praying what seems like a prayer of repentance, and there is Hamlet hiding behind the door, and maybe this is the moment, you know. But if I kill him now, he'll go to heaven, because he's confessed. <laughs> How can I send him to heaven? I'd rather see him in hell, is the sense in Hamlet. And so he waits and goes away. And when Claudius gets up from his knees, he says in an aside to the audience, Basically, my prayers didn't ascend to heaven. They went to the ceiling and stopped. The prayer of the wicked does not come to the ear of the Father. Isn't it right that the righteous God should reject the prayers of the wicked, the impenitent? But wait, in what respect does a righteous God in Psalm 4 hear and answer prayer? It's in this respect, and it is wonderful. When we repent and believe, we enter into covenant with God by God's own grace and mercy. The Holy Spirit constructs that in our lives. He woos us and wins us by his persuasive power. And we come and we say yes. 
from the whole heart, willingly, utterly. And we then belong. And it is utterly right and righteous for the Father to hear and answer the prayers of those who have repented and believed the good news. God is our Father. And it would not be right for the Father to reject the prayer of the believer. So answer when I call, Oh, my righteous God! And God does hear and answer prayer. And I believe uh, utterly that there are many, many in this congregation who can tell us of stories of events in life, both in time past and recent time, when God has indeed heard and answered prayer. In the teaching of Jesus Christ, all of our prayers are to be offered by his mediations. That's what it means to pray in the name of Christ, by the authorization of Christ. In the Shorter Catechism, we, we hear that prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will and in the name of Christ. And that's, that's right. Ancient Christians wrote that the whole church prays through the mouth of Jesus. That's right. My prayers are often foolish. Your prayers are often foolish. We pray with mixed motives. That's just fact. But when we pray by faith in the name of Jesus, Jesus takes that prayer and he fixes it. (laughs) He fixes it. I think I've said before to this congregation that you might pray for a Mercedes Benz and get a Volkswagen instead. <laughs> okay, because God knows. Yeah, God fixes the prayer. Yeah, he knows you need transit, but he's not going to give you that Cadillac or that Rolls Royce. All right, he's not going to do that probably. He gives you what you need. God knows. And so Jesus in his wisdom purifies our prayers. And such a prayer, to such a prayer, the Father never says no. That is, there are no negative answers to Christian prayer. God always says yes to the prayer that is offered in faith in the name of Jesus. It may not be the exact thing that you asked for. Might not be. But it is the thing that Jesus asked for. And so the church prays through the mouth of Christ. And prayer in the fullness of biblical teaching is addressed to the Father in the name and by the mediations of the Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so our prayers are Trinitarian in the way that David never quite knew, but in the way that we can know and love. So answer me when I call, O my righteous God. How is God righteous in hearing and answering prayer? Because we belong to him. And he is our father. And which of you, if he has a son and the son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? And Jesus says remarkably in that Luke text, If you, even though you are evil, know know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will will, will, will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Or in the Matthew version, how much more will the Father give good things to those who ask him. God is righteous. And in the psalm, his righteousness consists of his devotion, his commitment to hear and to answer 
our prayers. Do you believe this? In Jesus' name, amen. We are singing this psalm now. It's 4B 